Listen, last week, I mean, I'd come back from two weeks in Mallorca and I was just ready to come and just wanted to serve you guys. And of course, I love serving you guys. So this is, I came back and we did chapter 16 to conclude the book of Romans. And, but we had um, not done chapter 15, which is just clear proof once again that God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, which then I just further qualify. But as in prayer, I could just see God's brilliance in all of this as we take a week. And what I want to do first is take a word bath. In other words, what we're going to do is we're going to read quite a bit of Scripture. We're going to read 12 through 15 for a moment with the idea of getting context to everything we're going to look at quickly in chapter 15 at the end of it. But like I would say, anytime, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. That is so important. In chapters 1 and 2, we are we saw God reveal to us the key theme of sin in this very organized biblical document like a constitution of Christianity. In chapters 1 and 2, the basic sin, God reveals Himself to man and man says, no, me instead of you. That's the simplest of it. From that then, God promises us that the Gospel is the power of salvation to anyone who would believe, the Jew first then also the Greek, because in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That's not from faith to greater faith. That's from a faith in yourself to a faith in God. That's how salvation happens. Chapters 1 and 2 say, no, I'm going to trust me. Chapters 3 through 5, God goes from sin to salvation. And he does so by showing that we have to take our trust off of ourselves and place it on the finished work of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross For your and my sin, as Scripture promised, was buried, and just like Scripture promised, rose again on the third day in resurrection power to be more than just Savior, but the Lord of your and my life. And it isn't just that if we confess Him as Savior, He's happy to give us a warm fuzzy, but if we're willing to confess Him as Lord and Savior, believing that He didn't just die for us, but rose again. We don't just serve a dead Savior. We serve a risen Lord. Glory to God for that. And chapters 3 through 5 tell us that salvation can be found only in Jesus Christ. As controversial as that might seem, it's the truth. And can I just say, in love, get over it. That's what the buses have told me and other things. Can I say, Jesus is your only Savior. Get over it. The bottom line is we don't deserve any Savior And we should be just more than stoked to take any. And by the way, the only one that's offered is the only one qualified. And that's a free gift where Jesus paid the price. Why could, how could we look in the face of a Jesus who died for us on the cross, bloodied, mangled so far we couldn't even recognize him, stare him straight in the face and have him say, I did this all for you. And we say, yeah, but what else you got? Can we really do that? Chapters 3 through 5 tell us that this is faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Not your works, not your practices, not your church. By the way, praise God, he's not into group reservations. He calls his sheep by name. Not by color, not by race, not by background, not by nationality. He calls his sheep by name. And tonight, I am sure if you're willing to listen, you'll hear him call your name. Sadly, for most people, their Christianity stops at chapter 5. I just want to say I was a really terrible person. I was kicking puppies and slapping nuns, and I was horrible, and I was stealing hamburgers from children, and then I got saved. And that's the end of the story. But the book isn't even halfway done yet. God wants to let you know, the moment you said yes to Jesus, just like in a marriage, you don't just say, I do, and then it's I did. You say, I do agree to say, I do, from this point forward. I commit the rest of my life to commit to that person. And in the same way, Jesus, from the moment we said yes to him, Ephesians 1.13 tells us he placed his Holy Spirit inside of us and began cleaning us from the inside out, tearing it down from the, what we would say, tore up from the floor up. He went down to the foundation and poured himself there instead. And everything is built on Jesus Christ. And from there, he changes our priorities, our attitudes, our mindset, and he gives us his heart now. And that's a very radically different place to be. All of a sudden, we stop using people to get more stuff, and we start using stuff to get more people because they become the more important thing. 
So 6 through 8 show us not just now from God's from sin in chapter 1 and 2, God's salvation 3 through 5, but now God's setting us apart, or as we would say, sanctification 6 through 8. 9 through 11, now that we have a desire to do God's will, the problem is we can't do God's will our way. And we can't do God's things with our strength. That becomes the problem. And that's why when God says to you, I'm going to do something so profound and so crazy and so big, you're going to scratch your head at it. You go, there's no way. And we ask that dumb question, who am I? And that's just the funniest thing in the world to me. Because it's God who looks in his prayer closet to put on a jersey. And the jersey is saying, who am I to the athlete? It's the paintbrush saying, who am I to the painter? God says, the issue isn't you, my friend. I love you. That's who you are. You are beloved. Just remember that. The rest of it, let's get back to the point. God says, I am God speaking. Who are you? You're loved. But he's the I am. Now with that then, 9 through 11, God shows us that he is in control, or as we would say, sovereign. But it's more than just God does stuff to kind of work things out in such a way that man has no option in it. What we read is God is both sovereign and smart. And he's so smart, he can use your choices that you would make to still further his kingdom. He's that smart. He knows how to put you in the right place, knowing the choices you would make. Sometimes very stupid ones, sometimes even good ones. God knows how to do that to get the most, if you'll pardon me for saying, bang for buck. And he's so smart how he does that. And he uses as the example Israel, where God has not permanently cast away Israel, but God has rather committed them for the moment in their disobedience that the Gentiles would be saved. But there is a time where God is going to restore that nation. He has not permanently removed them. And anybody that thinks that God has permanently bailed on Israel for their uh, unfaithfulness, What makes you think God's not going to bail on you for yours? But God doesn't go back on his word. That's the beauty here. And interestingly enough, we get to our last section, 12 through 16, and it starts with the idea, what we should have gotten out of 9 through 11, is that God has mercy. Not just that God does stuff any way he wants to when there's nothing you can do about it. What the writer assumed you would get out of it is in view of his mercy. That's the point here. And so now we move from sin to salvation to sanctification to sovereignty and smart, God being, and then last to service. And this is where God wants to move you. You were a sinner, and if you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, God made you a saint. You are now saved. By the way, it doesn't matter where you started. The issue is where you end. I have two children that love to say, she started it. And of course, as a parent, you know the classic answer. Yeah, well, I'm ending it. That's the point. And no matter where you came from, God is an equal opportunity Savior and he'll meet every one of us at the cross. Glory to God. From there, then you went from sinner to saint to student and you became a student. and You became a student of God's word and you went to the school of Jesus. Welcome to the school of Jesus, beloved. But it isn't like we go there to be in a permanent holding pattern to never do anything. We are becoming students to become servants. That's what God wants to raise every believer to be. We don't just say, I'm just going to hell. I'm going to, I was going to hell and Jesus just saved me. I'm going to heaven and I don't care about the rest. I just want to go in and sit on the grass. I want God to say, well done, good and faithful servant. He doesn't just say, well, good and faithful saved kid. And he's looking to raise up people who will love each other. And I love watching you do that with each other. So instead of just developing 15, though we will for a moment here, Let's read 12 through 15. And by the way, can I just say, just the same way that if you took a shower, don't expect to drink all of this. That would kill you. Instead, let it wash over you as we get ready to dive into 15, okay? So look at it with me. Put on my smart glasses here so I can look smart. Here's what it says, starting in chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. 
For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. In ministry, or ministry, let us use it in our ministering, he who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Oh, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Proverbs 25, 21 and 22. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Well, do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, oh, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger, to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore all their due to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to who customs. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. And of course, you shall not covet. Or if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18 Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, knowing the time, that now is the high time to awake out of the sleep. Or out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Now that the night is far spent and the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Now who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. Now one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day, to the Lord does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat, for he gives God thanks. No, none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? 
Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will confess to God. That's Isaiah 45, 23. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. Now I know and I am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do you destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died? Therefore do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue all things or the things which make for peace and the things which, by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he he does not eat from faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Chapter 15. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor, for it is good. For his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the approaches of those who reproached you fell on me. At Psalm 69, or I'm sorry, uh, 69.9. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore receive one another, just as Christ also received us, to the glory of God. For I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the Father, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Second Samuel twenty two fifty, Psalm eighteen forty nine. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, Deuteronomy thirty two forty three. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him all you peoples. That's Psalm one seventeen one. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall arise to reign over the Gentiles, and in him the Gentiles shall hope. Isaiah eleven verse ten. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you are also full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, also able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified, by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in these things which pertain to God. I will not dare to speak of any of those things in which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. In mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and around about to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see. And to those who have not heard shall understand. Isaiah fifty-two fifteen. For this reason, I've been much hindered from coming to you. But now, no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you, however, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. Now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those of Macedonia and Achaia 
to make a certain contribution to the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed that they are debtors for the Gentiles have become partakers of their spiritual things. Their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now I beg you, brothers, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I might be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Lord, please, now as we dive a bit into 15, Lord, please let your scripture burst open and come alive. Let beautiful, beautiful things happen in this time. May we have so much fun in your word. May you minister profoundly to each of us. Lord, you know what we need to hear. So please have your way now. We commit ourselves to you and we thank you for the blessing of this time. And we pray, Lord, now that you would do something beautiful. Speak to us individually at our heart of hearts and corporately as a body, as a family now. Draw us together to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In chapter 12, I want to remind you as he begins this issue of service. When he speaks of service, he starts by telling us, by the way, that our first service isn't handing ourselves over to people, but rather that in view of his mercy, we're to offer our bodies as his jersey, our minds, our hearts, and therefore in all prophecy and ministry and teaching, exhortation, giving and leading and mercy, that in all of those things, we are to give over ourselves for God to do the work. If you think that real ministry is you giving yourself to people, you're going to burn up and dry out because what you do is you give yourself to God for people, not to people for God. And the difference is you hear God speak to you and because of that, you never burn out because you just do what he tells you. And I guarantee you what he tells you, you cannot do on your own, but he can do through you. That's the beauty of this. And everything from that point carries one simple theme and it actually happens in chapter 12, verse 9, when he says, let love be without hypocrisy. He doesn't say force love to be without hypocrisy. Make strive as hard as you can, but love wants to be unhypocritical. Love wants to be true. Love wants to be honest because God is love and God lives inside of you. Not in some esoteric weird way. God really wants to practically love others through you and me too. But understand, love is not warm, fuzzy, give me a hug, you're cute. Love is not, wow, I can't wait to be seen with you in public or how good you make me feel. Honest love in the simplest sense is you before me. It's that simple. The greater the love, the greater I put you before me. Now understand, what that means is the greatest love will cost you the most. Will be the most inconvenient. Will be at the most untimely times, of course. Will be the most expensive. Will be the most sacrificial. And nobody demonstrated that better than the one who gave everything. That's the point. We are so tossed up and janky about love because people say that when what they really mean is, hi, I love me and I want to get you in on it. Let's be honest. Someone looks and they see that you have something to offer. You're cute. You've got, you know, whatever. You're shapely. You've got a car. You've got money. You've whatever it is. And they look and they say, I really love you. And what they're really saying is, I really love me and I want you to love me too. With your car with your body, with your smile, with your money, with your whatever. But God says things need to be different in the house of God. Please hear me. There is no other area we can honestly compete for good reason. I'll be honest. If the world were to look at Christians and to see them different from the rest of the world, do you think they'll see them more faithful? Do you, see they'll, they'll think that, do you think they'll see them more committed Do you think that they'll see them more sacrificial in regards to their God? You cannot compete with Hinduism when it comes to sacrifice. You cannot cannot compete with people that are enslaved by fear to Islam. You cannot compete to cultures that are over the strong brow of respect to their elders. But God never told you you had to. We should respect our elders and we should be committed to them, but not because God demanded it, but because we love him. 
See, the difference is we don't do anything for God to do something. We do it out of the love. That's the difference. I'm not, I mean, I'm, think about it. Every other religion, and this was something I had to learn the hard way, you worship God to keep him away. I mean, think about it. It's like people go five times a day to pray so that the God of wrath doesn't come down heavy on them. They roll down naked down a hill so one of the 33, I'm sorry, 300 million gods of Hinduism doesn't perform wrath upon them. I don't worship God to keep them away. I worship God. I don't even worship God to bring them near. That could be the danger in a worship setting. I worship God because he is near and because he's good and he's worthy of that praise. Because out of the love he's poured forth in my heart, he took a horrible wretch that should go to hell with no argument and he rescued him out of that. And because of that, he should be worshipped. But then when the world looks at Christians, what they're supposed to see that's different is the way we treat each other. That's what's going to be different from every other religion. Jesus even said that, if you remember in the Gospel of John, when he said, by this, the world will know not even that you've perfected your Christianity, but that you're in school. He said, you'll know that you're my disciples. Mathitikos, it just means students. All a disciple is, is somebody that's gone from I'm happy to be saved to I want to become a student of Jesus. And he goes, just the fact that you made it into reception, grade one, year one, every year from that point on, we should look more selfless to each other. Because that's what God says the world is going to scratch their head over. Wouldn't it be great if that's the case? And we've been so busy trying to convince the world by being nice to people. Now look it. I'm all for getting the gospel to every creature. I mean, human being. You could go preach to the woodchucks, but that's a little silly in my opinion. And bringing a blanket and a sandwich and a rescue is a great thing. But please hear me. Everything we do must have the salt of eternity in it. Because it tells us no matter what you do in word or in deed, there's got to be a word because it says do it in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what we're told. So don't play that you've got a ministry that doesn't involve his name because that's straight against what scripture tells us. And God tells us no matter what it is. Because what, the, what God does not want is some person to say, oh, there are nice people. Like that guy's a nice person, but he's not a Christian. When he actually is, he just didn't have the guts to tell you. But what if every Christian did everything in the name of Jesus? Well, we wouldn't be able to do half of the things we asked. Well, you know what? But the things we would do would have eternal consequence. When, when bringing clothing and hygiene supplies to Israel, both sides, to the Arab and Israeli alike, we make clear we are doing this in the name of Jesus. And some say, you can't do that. And say, well, then don't let us but we're going to wherever we're allowed to. And what's interesting is, even in army bases, we're ultra-Orthodox Jewish men who would be very against what we would do as praying to Jesus, stand in their doorways after we've delivered them candy. You'd think that's a strange thing. Let me remind you, those that are in the army are 18, 19 years old, and they're very scared. And just to be able to bring them a creature comfort like that means a big difference. I'm like, I want to pray for God's safety over every one of you, but I'm going to pray in the name of Jesus. You are welcome to not be part of this circle, but if you would like to, I'd like to pray. And you'd be amazed at how many people come into the circle. And the rest, stand close enough to hear, but far enough to not be part of the circle. So you know every prayer involves the gospel. So you can hear the difference. Jesus came to save you. And God wants love to be without hypocrisy. And all hypocrisy, hypocrite means to wear a mask. In other words, today we would use the term acting. That's all we, God doesn't want you to be an actor when it comes to love. There are no Academy Awards or BAFTAs given to anyone that God applauds for our love. So we give preference to one another, verse 10 of chapter 12. 13, we distribute to the needs of the saints and we're given to hospitality. That's how our love is without hypocrisy. And verse 15, we rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. Verse 16, we're in the same mind with one another and we don't try to get ourselves all thinking that we're greater and wiser and smarter than everyone else, but rather we're willing to associate with even the most humble. In chapter 13, the way that our love is without hypocrisy is that we actually submit to the authority that's set around us. So we don't pretend like we're a maverick living on our own. 
Because whether it's in the house where the father leads, the wife helps, and the children follow, or in the church where the pastor leads, following Christ, I will never be the chief shepherd. Know that. Jesus is the chief shepherd and I serve him. In everything, we test all things and we join in, we jump in, and we follow Christ together. Or whether it be the state that makes laws and we obey and pay taxes and we give to all that is owed to them. But I'm reminded that Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but to God what is God's. And the only thing that carries the image of God according to Scripture seems to be us. We need to give to God what, he, what, owes him, what is owed him, which is us. It tells us, for all of the commandments are wrapped up in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see the hint there? Verse 10 of chapter 13. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Chapter 14, we want to receive people who have different convictions than us. And whether some people are going to have that conviction. You know what, I, I only eat, you know, I, I almost said I only eat meat. That'd be more like us. You know, I only eat vegetables. And it's like, well, then don't try to force them to become, don't try to pull them out of their veganism. Because what you're doing is you're making them sin. But it's other things too. I'm sorry, I don't watch those kind of movies. Oh, come on. What are you, like Miss Goody Two-Shoes? Look at what you're doing. You realize them having that conviction isn't sinful, but you're trying to pull them out of it is. You say, well, that conviction is. And he says, look, at here's the line that gets drawn in a church. On one side, there are the people with high convictions and they're quick to condemn. There are those that have lesser convictions and they're quick to be contempt, to be contemptuous against the others. And he says, neither is right. You can have either side of the conviction fence and actually not sin, but the way you treat each other is where the sin happens or not. And he says, again, can you see how this whole thing is? Now that your servants treat each other like family and treat each other right as Christ would treat you. So with that in mind, then it says, you know, so with that, so let's build right into it. So let's go right to then chapter 15 and let's take a look at what the Lord has to say in chapter 15 to develop that. So this is what he starts with. Notice this. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Here is the theme of real, honest love. Remember, love being without hypocrisy is the theme here. How do we do this? We just don't live to please ourselves. Do you know how hard this is? We are born selfish people. And we live in a world that's very selfish. It happened since the fall. At the fall, that was the whole point of it, was Eve, you could be first. God's the party pooper, and he is just keeping you from you being first. And that same voice speaks to every one of us and challenges us. In a marriage, we'll be talking about that, that very same issue on Friday for those who are, are serious couples. <clears throat> in regards to the church, me first. We climb the corporate ladder as if somehow I have the high position because I'm senior pastor. With all due respect, I'm just doing what God called me to. And I, get, I have no hot phone to God that, that you don't. It isn't like God puts you on hold, but I get a straight shot. It just doesn't work that way. All I'm seeking to do is do what God's called me to. Are you? Now, I can't tell you I do it perfectly, but I want to. But what he tells us here is you can't enter into this wanting to please yourself. Now, listen. In regards to humility, that's the whole point of it. Humility is just not thinking low of yourself. It's just not thinking of yourself. The problem is, if we took a picture and had you all stand against the wall and we took a picture and you looked at it, who would be the first person you'd look for? Probably yourself. Do I have a dorky smile? Are my eyes closed? You know? And then maybe someone, if you're single, you thought was cute, or if you're married, you just, you know, hope your wife looks good or your husband looks good too. But it's natural. It takes a supernatural act to slay the self-pleasing individual that we are. God's got to kill him. Can I just say this honestly? According to scripture, your flesh nature, which is what self-pleasing nature is, your flesh nature will never convert. You, your flesh nature will never get saved. Your flesh nature will never surrender to God. It will never become sanctified. That's why God says, I got to kill your flesh nature and give you a brand new creation. The old generation doesn't make it into the promised land for a reason because a new generation has to come in. And the same happens with you and me. God needs to take that old person. Now, some of us, that's okay. Some of us, we were nasty enough and we knew it enough that killing us was actually very merciful. But some of us want to fight that. And even those of us who thought we were rank, we thought even if we would have said we were 100% rank, we probably still thought we were 98% rank and there was 2% cool in there. And that's the part God works on too. And we fight God over that. And he says, that's still part of the old man. But he says, look at, if somebody in here, and the word scruples for what it's worth simply means that which lacks vigor. 
So it would be a weakness in a, in a conviction. It would be a weakness in a sin. A person who has, and by the way, an honest conviction should be a fence to keep you away from a sin. That's the idea. I have a natural tendency, for instance, my natural, where I came from, I had a natural tendency towards violence. I was a naturally violent individual. Now, praise the Lord, I do nothing to feed that side of me. I don't watch mixed martial arts or all that boxing or anything like that. Now, some of you can watch that, and that's totally fine for me. I just don't want to feed that part of me because I I just have no interest in that. It doesn't go anywhere good. I mean, there was a point in my life where I could have screamed at you, which I wasn't necessarily a screamer my whole life, but I could have just gotten real hot under the collar and thought I did okay because I didn't beat on you. But I'll be honest, when the Lord took that part away away from me, I was more than happy to let God slay him. Jesus took him and he nailed him to the cross with him. Glory to God. And when I look then and I look at everyone else, he says, now, you know you still have weaknesses. You know every person here still has weaknesses. To bear with means to help carry. The worst thing is, is to put more weight on an individual who's struggling in an area. If we loved each other correctly, We'd actually not condemn the sinner and eat the weak. We'd see where they're weak and we'd see how we can help them carry. Because that's what we do. Is lo- that's what people do when they love each other. They're not like, wow, you have a weakness with drinking? Well, I tell you what, on Friday and Saturday night, we're going to hang out together. Because we're going to keep those nights that you would go out and club and we're going to go and do something crazy, crazier, crazier than you've ever been at a club. We're going to read the Bible. We're going to pray. And for those of you who have ever gone, wow, that really sounds exciting. Try it. You'd be amazed. You're like, I couldn't possibly even read a chapter. We just read four. I remember when people would say that and I'd think, that's insane. And now I'm the insane I called. Man, praising God. There's nothing like it. Playing in front of 30 or more thousand people is nothing compared to playing, playing in front of the one to whom the heaven of heavens cannot contain. You know the greatest part is? He's such a good audience because he claps anyways. He doesn't say make a perfect sound. He says make a joyful noise. And I love the fact that that's the case. Now listen, let each of us please his neighbor for his good. That's the neighbor's good. Leading to edification. Notice he doesn't just take that out. It isn't like just try to make him happy. I've learned this. There's a big difference between simply pleasing someone and blessing someone. To please someone, it's like, well, look at that person really likes, you know, Lord of the Rings. Let's just have an eight-hour Lord of the Rings marathon and let's just zone out. And, you know, it's like, oh, that person likes this. And it's like, by the time you're done, well, what you've done is you've, done, you've, you've not done as bad, but you kind of did zero. And God's like, let's go beyond that and let's do good now. Let's edify each other. Okay? So you kept the guy from tearing down his house, but he could have actually built another level tonight. He goes, look at when you please people, do it in a way that builds them up. The term for edify, by the way, edify, is actually oikodomos. And oikos means house, and doma means dome, or another level. And the idea of it is, the taller the building, the greater honor it got. That was the idea to this day in the Middle East. The taller the building, the higher of honor it gets. And if you knew that, you'd know that every time we edify each other, what we're doing is we're giving them a structure. We're helping build them up so that they actually live a life more honorable. Can you imagine? That's the idea. What was that in mind? Then he says, notice verse 3, Jesus is our example, for even Jesus didn't please himself, as it is written, the reproaches of you have who reproach you have fallen on me. That's the first, that's Psalm 69.9. That's the same, by the way, where it says, zeal for your house has eaten me up. This is whatever things were written before. That entire beautiful book we have prior to the New Testament that some people say, we're just a New Testament church. I don't say that. I say we're a Bible church. Because the whole idea of it is, you know, and let's be honest. Some, uh, uh, let, me, well, let me put it into perspective here, at least in this. And I'm not endorsing movies. You can watch movies and not watch movies. I mean, I'm not going to, that's, that's a matter of conviction. But I've learned this, that for some, watching the Avengers movie made you want to watch eight other movies. Because if you could watch all of the other individual characters that played into the Avengers, it's like you understood the Avengers movie better. And here's the point of it. Is if you got the backstory on everyone, you kind of understood how this whole thing played in. The Old Testament is God's backstory before Jesus. And it's kind of beautiful because everything leads up to this beautiful moment of the cross. 
And as I read it, it's a love story. Don't rob yourself of that. It is an autobiographical love story written to you as the recipient of his love. Is that not amazing? And you're like, oh, I don't want to read that because it's like got like Leviticus in it and like Psalms, like 150 songs. How many songs are on your playlist? I can't have 150 Psalms. Be honest. You ever, do any of you other than me, you look at your phone when you've like, if you have an iPhone or that kind of thing and you're like, how could it be full? And like three quarters of it is your songs? I'm like, I didn't even know that many Christian songs existed. Or they're just big. So this is, the, this is the point. Everything that we can look at, that we can read in that beautiful book, were written to teach us that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. If you read it the way God intends you to read it, this is what you'll get out of it. Patience and comfort. And from that, hope. Did you get that? Please hear me in this. This makes sense to me. Because you've been, you know, you've heard God promise you something. He's like, you know, I'm going to deliver you from this sin. And you're like, I've been a Christian six weeks. I should be spotless in my behavior by now. It's been a year, but God promised. Is he going to fulfill it? And then you read Abraham's story. And you go, oh, dang it. 25 years. But he kept his promise. God always keeps his promise. And I've learned he's never early. Dang it. And then it's 490 years of people not giving the land its Sabbath rest. Every seventh year it's supposed to rest. And glory to God, he didn't charge interest. That's 70 years that land should have rested. And so the people are in captivity for 70 years so the land rests. God knows what he's doing. And I realize... I can find patience in Scripture because one thing I see is that God never fails and He knows what He's doing and He knows when to show up. It's always later than I want Him to, but it's always the right time. He has this habit of showing up when everything's impossible. And I've learned that's because if we showed up any moment before that, He would only be part of my testimony. He wouldn't be my testimony. Well, I was like 90% and God just gave me that 10% to push me over. No, I was hopeless. I was dead. I was an enemy and he saved me. There's a big difference. Do you get it? But not only patience, comfort. Because what we also see is, as we read through this beautiful old book that we call the Old Testament are stories of people just as sinful as we are. Did you notice that? That God still uses that God still doesn't give up on? Don't you love Jacob in the Old Testament? How many people are drawn to Peter in the New Testament because he lives a life of permanent athlete's mouth? Because he's constantly sticking his feet in his mouth. Peter didn't know what to say, so he said, it's good that we're here. Let's make tents for you guys. And God, you can see God saying, look, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And I love people like that. Because I relate to people like that. And I find comfort with the fact that when we read that God's gifts and callings are irrevocable, he's not joking. He doesn't change his mind because he knew it all before he called you. And me too. So I receive comfort as I read this. And I, as I look at this, he says, now look, at here's the point. I want you guys pleasing each other, serving each other, to edify each other. But as that's the case, Jesus even proved that he did that. Could you imagine... What did Jesus have to gain by picking us up? Baggage, trouble. He needs patience and comfort if you think about it serving us. Then I look at how we serve those guys, those 12 and then some. You think, praise God that he showed that kind of patience. This is what Paul would say. Please hear me. And this picks up as we're almost done. Paul himself, the writer of this, would say in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, he would say to Timothy, his protege, his, his apprentice, the guy that's going to take over the church for him. He says, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Right from the beginning, he says, if you grabbed a hold of this, grab a hold of it completely. It's totally worth it. He says, Christ Jesus died to save sinners. Well, okay, I'm with you. 
Paul says, of whom I am the worst. Arche is the word, like archangel. In other words, if we were like X factor for sinners, I would take it with, they wouldn't even have to continue the show. Simon would just give it to me from the first time I stepped on stage. I am the worst. Listen, Christ Jesus died to save sinners of whom I am the worst. So that in me, Paul speaking, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. It's interesting because he didn't say that Christ might display his unlimited grace or his unlimited mercy. That would make a little bit more sense. But you know what patience, how patience has to be exercised? There's a key word, and that word is time. That's the problem with patience. Is we all think we have it until time shows up. Time is the way we display patience. And we're like, oh, come on. So if any of you are thinking, man, when is this guy going to stop? Listen, Patience is displayed through time. And Paul says, in the simplest sense, if I could put it like where I came from, yo, yo, peep this. Christ died for me, so you couldn't say he wouldn't die for you. Because he showed, he waited, and he waited, and he waited, and he waited, and he waited. And after Paul got saved, he still waited. Because Paul tried to take the old Paul, at that point Saul, and create a ministry around that old guy. And there are people that do that to this day. The old guy ministry. You can have everything you want. Accomplish your dreams. Imagine going to church and saying, you know what, God just says, you just tell God what you want. And God's like a bellhop. It's like, ding! Jesus, I would like. Oh, in your name. You can see him going, oh, now I have to do it because you said in my name. But he's not Lord if we do that. And we have to confess him to Lord as Lord at the cross if we start this. So listen, Jesus didn't seek to please himself. What makes you think you should live to please yourself? Demanding Jesus to do everything for you instead of saying, Lord, I cast myself at your will, completely defies what it says here. But may the God of patience, so it says, now, now may the God of patience and comfort, those words sound familiar to you, grant you to be like-minded. What I discover then in that patience and comfort in the Old Testament is the God of patience and comfort. And may he grant you to be like-minded. Now, here's the great thing. You can disagree and be like-minded. Isn't that strange? It's like, yeah, okay, so you only eat vegetables. You, on the other hand, you're so much a carnivore, your teeth should be pointed. You know. But we can still sit in the same place because in the end of it all, it's just not going to be about that. So at the wedding feast of the Lamb, you can have this, the hors d'oeuvres and we'll have the main course. It's okay. Because in the end of it all, we've been sinners saved by grace. And that covers everything else. I mean, it's like it doesn't matter whether you're black or white or pink or orange or green. It doesn't matter whether your hair is long or short or you used to have or you do have. It doesn't matter whether you're way tall or way short, fat or young or skinny or rich or poor or educated or not because none of those things are going to matter in heaven. The only thing that's going to matter in heaven is have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ and in the inside, His blood's the same color as mine. Glory to God for that. And when you bleed, it's the same color as mine. And he looks and goes, I want you guys to be on one mind together. Now, what if the world looks and they saw, why do you think it is that God allows us to disagree on things so that we could show the world that we're actually different because we could disagree and still be unified? Isn't that beautiful? Now, we don't disagree on key points of Scripture. What we disagree on is whether you, you, know, you want to dress like a, you know, like a hipster or whether you want to look like someone that stepped off a Harley. We should be able to stand next to each other and love Jesus. And then the world goes, whoa, this is so weird. God goes, yeah, this is more like heaven. Because when John saw heaven, he saw people from all tongues and nationalities and peoples, which means at least the way that John saw it, they still look that diverse. Now, I don't know if that's what it's going to look like when we get there, but I can tell you what John saw was, wow, this is the most diverse group of people doing the same thing at the same time I've ever seen. And that's what I love about our fellowship. Is that we, and may God continue to make that so diverse. Bring in people from all walks of life, all different nationalities, so that when we praise God, the world can look and go, those people shouldn't be sitting next to each other. Why are they? In Israel, we actually have a ministry right in Bethlehem, and it's half 
Palestinian and half Jewish. Can you imagine? The world doesn't know what to do with that. We have people in here that are Greek and Turkish, even from Cyprus on both sides. They could be slinging rocks at each other, but instead what they do is they hold hands and praise. Isn't that that a wonderful? Well, listen. Let's close this up. Listen. Receive one another just as Christ received us. Do you know how he received us? The way we were, but please hear me, with the attitude that God makes us more like him. Here's the danger. People say, well, Jesus just accepts me the way I am. He says, but he loves you too much to keep you that way. So the marquee again would say, come as you are, leave as he is. That's the point. Well, Jesus should just accept me the way I am. Well, he received you that way, but he received you that way to slay who you were to make you new. But we receive each other with those differences because Jesus does. But, but the purpose of us all becoming more like him. So this is what I say. Jesus Christ has become a servant. And then he points out why this is the case. Because there's a group of Jewish people that seem to be on one side of the church and a group of people who aren't Jewish that are on the other. He says, stop that. Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made by the fathers. God, of course, is going to save the Jewish people. He promised he would. But he did so so that the Gentiles could get saved. That's the whole point of that. And that's what he says as he quotes Psalm 18, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 117, and Isaiah 11. In all of these cases, he says, look it, the Gentiles are going to be raised up, or the Gentiles are going to get saved, and I'm going to use Jewish people to do it too. So may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in this last portion here, Paul turns that and he says, here's the deal. I'm really hoping to visit you guys. I love you guys, but I don't want to go where somebody else has preached the gospel. I want to go where someone hasn't. And he even says that he's gone, notice here, he says in verse 19, he says, in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and around all the way to Illyricum. Let me ask you, do any of you know where Illyricum is? It's okay not to know. So you go, wow, how far is that? Let me tell you where that is. That's the border of Italy and Germany. That's Croatia, Bosnia, that is Istria, that is Slovenia. That's all of those things that used to be that area that we used to call Czechoslovakia. That whole area there is what we're looking at. That's where Paul went. That's how far he went. From the Adriatic Gulf to the Pannonia. That's as far as he went, according to Pliny. So this guy went and he's like, look, at, I just went everywhere I possibly could where Jesus wasn't preached. Today, you know what that means, though. If you were to go where Christ isn't preached, chances are you're going to die there. Are you aware of that? But here's the point. And this is the point that Paul made. Paul had already said before he left to live as Christ and to die as gain. See, Paul had already died before he left. So he wasn't afraid of dying. When Jesus says, if you seek to save your life, you're going to lose it, choose to die now and then you won't be afraid of where you're going. If the Lord's like, well, I'm going to send you to Brixton and you're like, that can't possibly be. I couldn't go to Brixton. Yes, you could. I might die there. Die here then. Because if you die to Christ, he'll take care of you. And you know what? Speaking, for instance, to Saeed, and some of you are familiar with the fact that now he's been moved to that torture prison where nobody seems to come out alive. Before he left, he was the same thing as Paul in a sense. He's like, look at I know what could possibly await me, but I'm not, that's not going to stop me from going. He's like, I've already died to Christ. What have I had to lose now? Man, that kind of person, may that spirit be in each of us. Because people that seek to save their own, cover their own, keep themselves comfortable, completely defy this chapter. And those kind of people aren't unified, don't serve each other, they serve themselves to please themselves. And I'll be honest, unless Christ slay us, that's who we're always going to be. The good news is, he happens to be in the business of doing so. So Paul says, look at because of that, I just want you to know, and he goes, I'm going to quote scriptures, Isaiah 52 says that that's the case in this, 52, 15. So now that I've kind of gone and run the route and I feel like I've gotten every place I possibly could, so I'll tell you what, I plan to visit you guys once I go to Spain. We have nowhere in Scripture that Paul ever showed up in Spain. We do know this. According to history, Paul was arrested in roughly 60 AD and he was put under Nero's in in the Mamertine prison in Rome for two years and then mysteriously released. And he was released for five years. Now, Everybody wants to tell you where Paul went, but Scripture doesn't tell us because the book of Acts ends with his first imprisonment. Many like to believe he went to Spain. I don't know where he went, but I can tell you this, that he wanted to go to Spain. And the reason he wanted to go to Spain, oddly enough, is because he was convinced that no one there had heard about Jesus. That was the point. It wasn't like, that's cool, and I heard they've got good paella there. 
So with it, he goes, you know what? I hope to visit you on the way, which tells us that Paul doesn't fully understand where he's going yet. But he knows, like, but first I'm going to do this. And this is where this wraps around. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem. And this is why, according to the book of Acts, a terrible famine hit the area of Jerusalem. And because of that, in that area of Judea, so the rest of the churches got together and this is what they did. They didn't give their money to the Red Cross. They didn't give their money to an institution that didn't have anything to do with Jesus. They pulled their money together and gave it to the church in that area so that the church could be used to reach the people who were injured and hurting in that area. Could you imagine if that's what we did? Could you imagine if today we rallied together and said, how are we going to reach the churches in the Philippines to help them with the people that were there? Because that's what we did when, it, when, the, when that horrible earthquake and the tidal wave hit Thailand. We were part at least responsible. We jumped in to help rebuild an entire city on the coast, the southern coast of Thailand. But we didn't do it because we came in as mercenaries. We sought to find the churches that were in that area so that we could work with the churches so that when we left, that church was still there to do that. When a horrible famine hit the area in Tanzania, we went and jumped right into the area there in the middle of Dogo. And as we went there, we jumped in and we helped that church. Now, that's not like, check us out, we're right, we're awesome. The bottom line is God's awesome. He just showed us that in Scripture. And the bottom line is that church was the only point of, they, they, were, they were the point of material and physical salvation to the people. And they were quick to preach the gospel. So they came in under one thing and got Christ out of it in the end. They received eternal salvation as a result. When you seek to plant a well in an area of a third world country, we plant it next to a church because we know that that church then will be able to preach Jesus and the people could come for water and living water. That's what we want. And that's what Paul says. I want to go and plant, I want to go and I want to preach the gospel, but I'm first going to go and I need to drop off this money that we've gathered to the church that's there. So would you pray please? Because some people there are pretty rough and they don't like me. And I really want to get back to you. Interestingly enough, the people not liking him is how Paul's going to get to Rome because Paul will get arrested in, in Jerusalem and wind up taking a slave ship and a cargo ship over to, to Rome because he appealed to Caesar like a Supreme Court decision. So Paul, not knowing his route, knows where he's going to go. And often God will do that with you. He'll say, I have this place for you and he's going to put it on your heart, but he's not going to tell you how you're going to get there. So don't tell him how because I guarantee you his way is probably going to be different. Keep your eyes on him instead and watch what the Lord does. So here's how, we, here's how it ends. Take a look at it with me. So he says this, verse 30. Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I might be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. The other concern is, hey, when I get there, could you just make, would you just pray that what I give is what they need there in Jerusalem at the church. Now, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and I may be refreshed together with you. Now may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And of course, the last chapter will be Paul saying hi, 34 names. He'll be mentioning the people who say hi back. And of course, if you want to know more about that, you can get the, the message from last week. <laughs> That's a little out of measure. Beloved, as we go to prayer now, let me just ask you, first and foremost, have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, confessed him as Lord and not just Savior, believing he died on the cross for your sins and rose again? Have you accepted that? If not, I'm going to give you a choice today to say yes to him. Now understand, the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God is sure of it. He knows what he's doing. He saves now, if you have said yes, my prayer is, will you commit with me? Now, not just in an emotional moment like this. Emotions make a really good ignition, but they're a terrible engine and they're no steering wheel. But will you commit with me that as we seek to grow in Christ, what we're seeking to do is become more transparent and more selfless to love each other as God called. Do you know what that means? Do you realize what we would look like a year from now? We'd be radical because we'd be loving each other as Christ called. We'd be seeking to serve each other. We would be quick to come over and help in whatever area was needed. And even as this started, that for a person who had whatever weakness, that would be something we would jump out to seek to help. And that's so different from the world. A needy person is a person everyone in the world avoids. A needy person should be able to come to, into the church 
and find help. Not from the pastor or the church institution first and foremost, but from the entire body to reach out. And that's what God ordained. So as we go to prayer, if you haven't accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I invite you to him. If you have, I invite you to come to Christ again today, not for salvation, but that God would continue to slay who we were to make us.